in the parrot room, we're going to go after Judith Butler more. That's some promise for people in, in, for, to tune in. I may not have that much more to go after her on, but yeah. Well, I'm just uh-huh. promising something for the okay. parrot room. <laughs> the most orthodox of all Marxist economists I have ever met. The reason why I'm still a Marxist is that I claim that this structure of belief of displaced belief. You find it in what Marx described as commodity fetishism. That all really dialectical and intelligent human beings will have a sense for evil and some sympathy for the devil. Or they will be just a little stifled and bored. I think that's not wrong. Just a little sympathy for the devil will hurt. Inside Critical Theory brings you this Diet Soap interview. I've got Chris Catrone with me today, a popular guest on the Diet Soap channel. Yeah, you were popular when you were on the Zero Books channel. And um, I'm glad to have you back. You are on because last week I interviewed uh, Conrad Hamilton about a, a manifesto he had written um, trying to make sense of the COVID moment we're in and and have develop a politics around the pandemic and coming out of the pandemic and uh you reached out to me i mean often enough i reach out to you you're as i said a very popular guest but you reached out to me this time because you wanted to respond to what you saw in that interview um so uh uh and you'd sent me an essay or really a a, a lecture or speech you gave at a plenary uh, a few years ago and it was titled redeeming the 20th century statism and anarchy today and that's what we'll be discussing. And I, so Chris, welcome back to the channel. Thanks, Doug. Yeah, and uh, tell me what it was about what Conrad said that made you think about your own assessment a few years back of the millennial left. Well, um, I was struck by some things. So I had sort of predicted, not particularly, you know, oracularly or pers- you know, perspicuously. Uh, yeah <laughs> perspicaciously nice at at um the statist turn of the millennial left mm. and the dsa uh, is a kind of an obvious example of that but maybe even more broadly we might even say that this is the this is the affinity between the tankies and the dsaers mm-hmm. right and of course there are tankies in the dsa you know right. sort of marxist leninists and so i was struck um by uh, Conrad Hamilton's um, kind of frank discussion of that, like, you know, we shouldn't vilify the state, we shouldn't be anti-statist. Um, and he really, you know, fell into what I thought was a predictable kind of anti-neoliberalism. Mm-hmm. That neoliberalism is, you know, the destruction of the commons and the destruction of the public good and, you know, d- dismantling of the welfare state. And, you know, and I just thought, well, interestingly, like, if you ask the avowed right, you know, in other words, not the Democrats, but the Republicans, they will point out that the welfare state is still as strong as ever. And, you know, entitlements have only grown. Right. And the the public sector and the, the share of the government spending in the GDP has only grown in the last 50 years, which is true. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and certainly others, you know, not necessarily the Republicans, 
um, could point out that it's not as if the state has really retreated, like the repressive state has not retreated. And of mm -hmm. course, you know, very kind of prominently, you know, the carceral state has grown a great deal. Um, and so, you know, it's not as if neoliberalism has been anti-statist. You know, and I was also thinking back in the day, my old professor, Moish Postone, had sort of warned that discontents with neoliberalism would lead to a new statism, right? And so the idea was that maybe the history of capitalism is going to be some kind of oscillation between statist and liberal phases of capital, and that we should beware of falling into that. Mm. Um, and so, you know, this has been kind of on my mind for a while. And he also threw platypus in with that. In other words, that platypus because, was statist. Yeah, that we were, we were reading Lenin and therefore we were statist. Wow. And it's like, well, Lenin and, you know, Conrad Hamilton, right? It's like, so he's like, no, we, we should not adopt Lenin's attitude towards the state. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right? Right, right. And so, you know, but again, Moish's perspective is that willy-nilly, Lenin was a statist even though he didn't intend to be because he was sort of conditioned by history and the liberal era of capitalism came to an end and was replaced by the primacy of politics in the 20th century, the kind of status turn. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that you see with like fascism and welfare statism and Stalinism. Mm -hmm. um, and neoliberalism comes out of the crisis of that statism. But now the crisis of neoliberalism might give rise to a kind of new statism. Well, I want to I want to point out something that you just said about you said two things that seem to be kind of at odds with each other. On the mm -hmm. one hand, neoliberalism is not uh, a project that backs away from the state, nor even does it undo social welfare programs. Um, on, so that's on the one hand, you said that. On the other hand, you said Moish Bastone, in a way that's indicated that you might agree with him, Moish Bastone worried that capitalist development would fluctuate between statism and neoliberalism or, or liberalism. And the, st the statism in neoliberalism seems to be missing from that dichotomy you know that uh if it so what are what was he really talking about when he talked about that fluctuation between i think he different was talking forms about freedom, of statism like ideology yeah. and freedom in other words mm -hmm. that freedom would appear differently in different phases of capital that um freedom in the late liberal era of capitalism might have looked like statism or the primacy of politics so mm -hmm. in the early 20th century you know, all these movements, you know, whether it's progressivism or whether it's socialism of that time, you know, second international socialism or Stalinism later or fascism, that they're all done in the name of freedom. In other words, they're all done in the name of um, human self-determination, which unfreedom looks like liberal chaos, right? And the, the chaos of the marketplace that denies the human good, mm -hmm. right? And then we could define the human good in whatever ways, but then it looks like the way to rectify that is to assert politics, political will, right? Mm -hmm. And that the disenchantment with that later, like 50 years later, mm -hmm. is, oh, well, you know, we've created this kind of monster, this kind of bureaucratic administrative state, and we've these massive corporations... And so the freedom 
now would be seen as restoring, um, you know, the liberal civil society as opposed to the bureaucratic institutions of the state and the corporations. Right. Okay. Right? And then now it looks like freedom is going to be freedom from neoliberalism and the orthodoxy of the market. Back again, right? to back again from the beginning. But the thing about that is, though, that under neoliberalism, the idea that <clears throat> we were returning to a kind of freedom from state intrusion or state control of the market uh, was misguided. It was a, a basically a lie because the neoliberal project was about propping up along nationalist lines, various corporate entities went <clears throat> through monetary policy and direct subsidy. That's what neoliberalism was. And deregulation was a part of that, but it was mm -hmm. not, it was, it was not deregulation in total. It was just a certain kinds of deregulation. Selective. Yeah. So, and now, um, uh, but the, I think maybe on a political level, certainly like on an international level, the difference between the statism of the welfare state or social democracy and the statism of neoliberalism might mean the difference between a world in which, except for uh, unequal battles between developed nations and the periphery, um, war uh, is no longer on the table in order to settle international disputes between major economic powers, that, that the integration of global capital uh, and the and the dream of like the the character and network mm -hmm. uh, is like the neoliberal dream where everything mm -hmm. is settled through dollars and financialization and and the, mm -hmm. there are no nations there's just major corporations that's mm -hmm. a neoliberal moment and then turning away from that means now we have we're turning back to the nation and the the danger of like warfare of of another world war even looms in our imagination there was an uh, activist that, so who comes to mind immediately is an activist in chicago who was around the marxist humanists but not around the andrew Kleiman. Mm -hmm. the other ones imho or or news it was, letters uh, around the um international marxist humanist organization the in yeah. my humble opinion organization <laughs> right right of uh, peter hudis and and um kevin anderson and others um who himself is a red diaper baby, a son of a Socialist Workers Party U.S. Trotskyist or post-Trotskyist cadre member, mm -hmm. longtime member. And, um, you know, he's like a bus driver unionist here in Chicago. And he gave a talk about how Bernie Sanders represented the um, coming war, right? That, that Bernie Sanders, social democracy meant like, the coming of World War Three, And this was kind of around the time of Trump, too, right? But he would have seen Bernie Sanders and Trump as nationalists, mm -hmm. right? And this social democratic turn as nationalistic. And, you know, that that would lead inevitably to war. Yeah, I mean, um, the, maybe, the, the, maybe. The, parallel, the, the integration of, of, of the different forms of social democracy was even more apparent in France. Around that time, uh, I forget the name of the 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 social democratic far left candidate uh, in France, but there was a candidate running who was even more overtly nationalist and and nativist. is it Jean Luc Mélenchon? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Well, he's nationalist in a particular way, and he's an interesting figure. He's an interesting figure. He mm -hmm. he's calling for you know a sixth republic. 
mm-hmm. in France, um, like a fundamental constitutional change. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know exactly where he stands in the EU. I think he's discontented with the EU. Like he has mm-hmm. that old like leftist skepticism towards the EU. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, which is warranted. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, he's an old socialist. I don't know what his deep background is, but it, it, he seems like a kind of a post-socialist. He seems like the Podemos people, mm-hmm. like a kind of a post-socialist character mm-hmm. and definitely a kind of democratic Republican kind of character, you know, like mm-hmm. he wants to restore, you know, the democratic Republic in France. Um, and, you know, that makes sense insofar as the right wing party in France, of which uh, Macron is a is a representative, is a Gaullist party. Right. Mm-hmm. It represents that old, you know, Fifth Republic and Fourth Republic stuff, mm-hmm. um, you know, which which there are problems. Right. But, um, yeah, the nationalism, you know, I'm just not sure that nationalism is the big danger. Right. I mean, you can sort of say that, you know, you could say, okay, it's going to be like protectionism and what was Postone worried about that when he worried I, about that oscillation? Was he thinking about nationalism? nationalism? He yeah. was. And of course he was thinking about it in terms of anti-Semitism mm. and, you know, that any nationalism is inherently anti-Semitic. And he was also thinking that the critique of capitalism is objectively anti-Semitic right? Which is to say that the vilification of the market and of finance is objectively anti-Semitic. Oh, well, okay, but that's not the critique of capitalism, right? It is not, right, but the the ostensible critique of capitalism, right? Right, right. In other words, the kind of commonplace discontents Mm -hmm. with capitalism Mm -hmm. has a kind of anti-Semitic bent to it. Right. And, uh, you know, and that anti-neoliberalism was also going to be, in that sense, anti-Semitic. And I think yeah, you could say that. I'm not sure that that's like a particularly salient point. You know, like, I don't know that that's like the big danger. I mean, he saw it in terms of like anti-Zionism is the anti-imperialism of fools. Mm-hmm. Right. And in the same way that, that anti-Semitism was the socialism of fools, you know, mm-hmm. so he's very, but it's the socialism of fools. It's the anti-imperialism of fools, meaning that it's not that Postone was against socialism or against anti-imperialism, but he mm-hmm. was against the foolish part, right? Right. The foolish uh, expression of it. So he was very concerned that like real discontents with capitalism would take on a um, conservative reactionary character, and of course he, you know, he thinks that the precedent for that is the political turn of the early 20th century, the primacy of the political. I think in the last public speech he gave before he died, which was in Vienna, I think in late 2018, he said something like, we saw what happened when the old petty bourgeoisie was destroyed. It gave rise to fascism. Now we're dealing with the destruction of the working class. What what monstrosity, what atrocity is that going to give rise to? I can't and see. See, I just feel like no. That's not true. That's right. just There's not no true. Destruction of the working class. Right. right exactly. Yeah. Right. I In mean, the same way. When I interviewed Poistone, he claimed that the working class might not be the revolutionary subject because it was never going to become large enough and and politically aware enough to take on the task. But it, that, but that, to say that is not the same thing as to say that the working class as an economic category. 
you know, maybe not as political. For- I mean, Postone was basically saying that Trump is the working class candidate, and you could say that he was, right? Yeah, I in guess. In yeah. empirical sense, I mean, he's not the proletarian candidate, and he's not the socialist candidate by any means. But he was, I suppose, I just, it's did, very Did he strange. have more working class votes, really? I he think did. the Democrats still had more working class votes overall. He just had an increase in working well, class support from other Republican. Increase. Yeah, but not, and, but and it wasn't more. And it suggested more. further inroads. Okay. Right? And so, you know, when you're looking at that, you're looking at, it's also how you define class. So there are a couple of ways you could come at it. One is the unions endorse Hillary, but the members vote for Trump. That happened. Mm-hmm. A, because obviously that's a huge turnout machine for the Democrats. And so losing the members of the union to the other candidate, that's like a big deal. But still so, more union members voted for Hillary than for Trump. It's probably. Just but, yeah. you know, but again, then it's like, well, what, how do unions represent the working class? So the other question is how are we defining class? And, you know, in a broader sense, this is what gives rise to all this stuff about the PMC and is the PMC part of the working class or not, you know, and also the educated versus the uneducated. The way that mainstream capitalist politics defines class is educated versus uneducated. So if you're educated, you're middle class. If you're uneducated, you're working class. Yeah. And which is a very strange way of putting it. But I feel like all the PMC talk fits into that, too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. That angst about like what is the class status of the PMC. So, you know, so you mentioned, you know, this this presentation that I gave back in 2019. Yeah, let's get to that. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Which was on the occasion of the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. Mm-hmm. And so it was really, it's a kind of an internal platypus discussion to a certain extent, um, where the the issue there was the 20th century and Stalinism right as the as the salient phenomenon of the 20th century and what to do with it and what to do about it and so it's basically an argument between me and Richard Rubin about the significance of 1989 and Richard his attitude is 1989 changed everything and my attitude is it kind of changed nothing so i think that like the new left and neoliberal turn of the seventies is more important than the fall of Stalinism from power in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. I think that the the crisis of Keynesian Fordism, which ultimately led to the destruction of the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. right? Um, in other words, the debt crisis of the Eastern European countries really undid Stalinism. That's why you had the rise of Solidarność in Poland. And that's why you had the breakup of Yugoslavia like you, these countries do go into serious economic crisis, like the rest of the developing world in the seventies, mm-hmm. where their debt suddenly changes, right? Mm-hmm. So they they go from sustainable debt to completely unsustainable debt. And you know what brought Solidarność to power was the demand that the IMF made to Poland, which is that they had to it, to get any more money, they had to let Solidarność run in an election. Mm-hmm. Right. Like it's very straightforward. So I think that that's more significant than the belated effect of all of that, which was the destruction of the Warsaw Pact. Right. So that that's where the discussion comes in. It's kind of like, OK, well, so when we're talking about the 20th century, we're basically talking about like what Eric Hobsbawm called the short 20th century, 1914 to 1991, mm-hmm. you know, from crisis of World War One leading to the Russian Revolution 
up to the disintegration of the Soviet Union in 1991. Mm-hmm. And you know, by the way, that's the weakest of all of Hobbesbaum's volumes mm-hmm. of his of his history, precisely because of his Stalinism and the way he has to deal with the 20th century. I rather provocatively, I just feel like forget the 20th century, meaning the 20th century is just a house of horrors. And you know, I was reading about for some reason the Church Committee came up, you know, mm-hmm. the investigation of the CIA and MK Ultra. <laughs> and you know this kind of stuff right mm-hmm. and like you know so you'd like to say okay well probably the same thing is going on now as back in the 50s and 60s with mk ultra probably all sorts of secret atrocities are being committed but maybe not maybe not actually right mm-hmm. so it, it's quite possible the mid-20th century that people now look back upon fondly the welfare state and all this stuff was actually a horror show in a way that the present is a different horror show, but it's not the horror show of the state that can snatch mm. citizens off the street to conduct experiments on. Right. Right. Like that. Maybe it's not quite like that. Right. It's a different well, kind of problem. I, I mean, the MK ultra thing mostly took place through uh, mental hospitals and institute and the institutionalized, I, I think, you know, but, well, when you well, talk about brainwashing people who it, were kind of temporarily, like there was a woman like who was hospitalized briefly for like postpartum depression. Right, exactly. You know, like... Yeah, I know, but I mean, they like, weren't just snatched off the street. But yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. More or and I, less. Yeah, <laughs> you know yeah, yeah. I mean? And they yeah. also did snatch people off the street. Like, not yeah. in the United States. But, you know... And well, so, I want to I, I want to reframe this a little bit because I think that we're getting we're like I made the mistake of sort of going into the weeds on some issues. Now that, this is going into the weeds, but let me let me recover. Let me, let me okay. Let me just see if I can reframe okay. it with a question. So uh-huh. okay, so the point here when when it comes to the difference, the how to interpret the 20th century, is to think about the way in which a certain kind of statism dominated the 20th century, and how that. Uh, uh, that domination by the state, whether it became neoliberal later or not, defined the failure of the socialist project. Right. Uh, uh, and, and I that, don't think it did. You don't think it did? Okay. No. In other words, well, first of all, what socialist project? Well, the, the, let's say Stalinism, the Stalinism and social democracy. Actually existing socialism. Right. That was uh, by that was a symptom of the failure of the struggle for socialism that came out of the 19th century and yes. had already been defeated yes. by your estimation in 1919. Yes. OK. Right. So so what you're you're saying, the reason we can forget about the 20th century is that everything that's gone on since 1919 is the revolution is defined by a status counter revolution. Right. Okay. So I just want to get that. Like, no, that's clear. good. No, that's good. And and that, and of course, neoliberalism is just part of that. It's a right. continuation of that. It's not a reversal of that. Right. It's mm-hmm. actually, in some ways, a more pernicious form of that. Mm-hmm. Um, because you know there are different ways of thinking about neoliberalism. Um, one though would be that it's just as statist as before, but less responsibly so. In other words, that the state is just as much, and maybe more so. A presence. I think Ted Cruz actually said this in the Senate not that long ago about like the growth of the state since the since the seventies in the last mm-hmm. fifty years, mm-hmm. right? And you know, but in an unaccountable way, or accountable to different people, accountable Account- to different people, but un- politically unaccountable. In other words, right. in the democratic sense. So if right. we're living through a crisis of democracy now, because by the way, that's where I put Conrad Hamilton's whole discourse 
I'd put it into a kind of restoration of democracy, that that's what he's calling for. And, you know, that is understandable, but what it, what it really poses the question of is what democracy, meaning, okay, was the United States more democratic in the 60s than it is today? Right. And what would it mean to claim that that was so? And this is, you know, of course, this of Jacobin DSA underlying assumption. It's the Ralph Millibandism. Like there is this kind of idea that in the 20th century, democracy grew. You know, so socialism didn't necessarily grow, but democracy did. Right. And they'll point to the documents like um, that came out, I think, in the late 60s, or early 70s, about the crisis of democracy, where there's too much democracy and the the trilateral oh, yeah, the right the right furnishes all sorts of like proof that there was an anti-democratic turn in the 70s that there was mm-hmm. a kind of deliberate you know like a Samuel Huntington yeah i mean there's like you know there are these characters who are coming in and saying oh you know if you want to avoid the kind of crisis of legitimacy we have now we should really tamp down this democracy stuff because it's getting unwieldy it's getting mm-hmm. unmanageable and I kind of feel like, well, what you're really talking about is the terms of bonapartism, to use a term, to use mm-hmm. an old, old Marxist term. To explain it's, that, what that is again. Uh, well, it's the idea that the state has to solve problems for society or try to. In other words, that the old kind of bourgeois liberal democratic ideal of the American and French revolutions, for example, but also, you know, the Lockean glorious revolution, you know, the kind of the English, you know, tradition Mm. that is traced back to the Magna Carta, but really is about the English civil war and the glorious revolution. Mm. It's really about the bourgeois era. Um, You know, it's not some kind of tribal Anglo-Saxon democracy or something Mm. that, that Bonapartism is really an 1848 phenomenon. Although there are rumblings like leading up to that, where, you know, the way Marx put it is the bourgeoisie can no longer rule in the old way and the proletariat cannot yet rule. So the whole question is, how did the bourgeoisie rule in the old way? And did they rule through civil society or did they rule through the state? And the argument was, the old Marxist argument, which everyone has disputed, but I stick to, mm-hmm. is that actually the bourgeoisie ruled through civil society, not through the state. Mm-hmm. In other words, that the state was was subordinated to society did have to answer to society that the state didn't really rule and when that happened like in the mid-19th century when the state did sort of take over with louis bonaparte so it's not napoleon bonaparte it's Mm. louis bonaparte that that was an expression of the crisis of capitalism the crisis of bourgeois society and capitalism and for marx it was like a negative indication of the need for the dictatorship of the proletariat In other Mm. words, that just as the bourgeoisie could no longer rule through civil society because of the crisis of capitalism, bringing forth Bonapartism, the capitalist state per se, Mm -hmm. to rule in the name of the bourgeoisie in a way that the bourgeoisie can no longer do civilly and socially, spontaneously, um, but has to be done politically through the state, that that that's the same necessity that the dictatorship of the proletariat would meet. In other words, that the dictatorship of the proletariat would do what the Bonapartist capitalist state has to do, but with the goal of overcoming capitalism, A, and B, with the 
dictatorship of the proletariat being based on, you know, a broader democratic basis, both politically and civilly and socially, because it would be based on all the you know, labor unions and other like social organizations of the proletariat, that objectively, this would necessitate overcoming capitalism. In other mm -hmm. words, that objectively, the, the problem of capitalism, the cap problem of capital accumulation and the reproduction of society would be posed in a way that in capitalism, that appears to be some like force of nature outside of the scope of politics, mm -hmm. right? So the state can only kind of go from one crisis to another and kind of manage the crisis, but it can't actually grasp the crisis, the actual crisis of society and capitalism in a way that the dictatorship of the proletariat would be objectively compelled to do. Would you say this is something that just came to me while you were describing this to me? Uh, would you say that it, it, you can think of the rise of the Bonaparte state as the way in which capital, the accumulated capital, the power of capital, dominated the bourgeoisie? Yes. Okay. It's an expression of that. It's a mediated expression of that, but it is an expression of that. And yeah. of course, it's not like an actual solution. In other words, Bonapartism right. is not a solution. It's just a crystallization of the crisis manifest. Right. And, and, and so the fact that the bourgeoisie could not escape from capital yep. is why the state ha had so much power and continues to have so much power. And yep. the proletariat could be more bourgeois, in a sense, than the bourgeoisie. They could be more yes. humanistic. They could be better at achieving equality, more democratic. Um, and, more socially-minded. More socially minded and and more powerful, more, more powerful, tru yeah. truly the masters of the universe because they could overcome the mediated force that seems like a natural force in society. Or they could at least grasp it as a problem because, again, the idea is that I think that the way um, Marx and Engels put it is that the democratic republic, which would be achieved by the dictatorship of the proletariat, would be the political form in which the class struggle would be fought to its conclusion and capitalism would be overcome. It's a very mm -hmm. opaque formulation because they have this idea, which was sort of intuited by Maoism in the 20th century, which is that there'll still be capitalism after the capitalists are gone. Right. Right. And, then, and that, and th this comes to our, our kind of ongoing debate about the critique of the Gotha program and how to interpret what he's saying there and the, the idea of transition. We could get to that, but I wanted to point out, I watched a, a, a platypus affiliated society panel recently, and I forget what it, what the topic was, but there was a, it was about what is class class in the a, left. It was yeah. a good panel. I thought it was it good. It was really good. And there was a, a, a member of the DSA. Yeah. Who of was. The class unity faction. Class unity faction. Who I thought was fascinating and really worth listening to. And it was strange to me where he ended up. Yeah, no, I mean, but yeah, it's it's indeed the case. I mean, the other people, Elena Langa and Carlos, I forget his last name, the Midwestern mm. Marx Collective, mm. they were. I felt more sympathetic to them than to the class unity guy ultimately, but they were all kind of, yeah, raising interesting points, but he was, you know, trying to square the circle between class, like, the Marxism. class unity guy. Right. We was like really trying to apply a political economy, the, the critique of political economy from Marx to our political situation, try to get beyond the political impasse of the left. 
and where he ended up was we should all go into business, right? <laughs> we should go like, we should all become innovators in the realm of business and, and create new forms of social reproduction on that level of like a level of factory level of, of enterprise. Oh yeah. So it was a little bit Richard Wolf ish or something. Well, I was it, it wasn't clear Albert-ish. to me. It was, it was a little Michael Albert ish, maybe a little, but not even as clearly as that. Cause you could easily enough see how it would shift from a class project to overcome capitalism into like, Silicon Valley disruptor economy. Let's. I mean, look. This is this is this would be my basic point. Yeah. You know, which I think I brought up on the This Is Revolution interview I did recently, Mm. which is that the petty bourgeoisie and intellectuals, insofar as intellectuals are, you know, they might have to like earn a wage and might be part of the proletarianized working class, but in terms of like their role is kind of petty bourgeois necessarily. That intellectuals, you know, can cook up all sorts of socialist schemes, mm-hmm. but really they're just going to be pointing to the innovation of capitalism. They're not going to be, you know, in other words, the intellectuals are not going to bring us socialism. Only, only the proletariat can, right? Right. But I thought he was, I thought the way he failed was really interesting, uh-huh. and you know, more interesting than the, than maybe the other panelists. But I didn't pay attention. I I, I started in the middle. I came in after it started, and I left. Uh-huh. You know. But yeah, no, the other so, panelists might have seemed to, I don't know, doctrinaire or something less practical. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, but, but he was, too. I liked him because he was using the, the critique of political economy. But the reason I bring it up is because this problem of how to relate to capital and, and whether or not, because the only way for the free to have a dictatorship of the proletariat is through the state, through the right. accumulation, the, 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 right. the, the, the grabbing state power. In the Marxist so when, view, yes. In the Marxist view. So, yes. So, okay, once you accept that, then differentiating between the kind of statism that dominated the 20th century and the and the actual socialist project that you say occurred up until 1919 becomes a little trickier for people to Well, understand. let's deal with the claim. So the claim of communist China today mm-hmm. is that it's the dictatorship of the proletariat and that they're taking a capitalist road of development to socialism. Which is what Lenin did. Yeah, you could say that. I mean, yeah. you could say that Stalin fudged the issue by declaring the Soviet Union to be socialist in the 1930s. But right. that later, Khrushchev and Brezhnev, that their attitude is, well, we're still on a socialist road. And really, this is the dictatorship of the proletariat. And, you know, and again, it's like they were, I mean, didn't Gorbachev start out as a tractor driver on a collective farm? I guess it is the dictatorship of the proletariat, isn't it? I mean, well, now, no, not so much, right? Right. But like, you know, and and Zhu and Lai, maybe not so much. Maybe they're old landlord. Look, this is not the way to conceive of the proletariat, okay, where you were born. Right, right, right. Okay. Let's, just, let's just give it, you know, its due, mm-hmm. right? That it's more or less plausible that what you had in those countries were dictatorships of the proletariat. This is where I feel like, no, the point would be that dictatorship of the proletariat is pitched at a global level, which doesn't mean every single country, but it does mean that the proletariat is able to politically affect the predominant part of the reproduction of global capital. Mm-hmm. And of course, the Soviet Union and communist China were never in the position to do that. Right. And, mm-hmm. and I guess you could say, and this is why you have some 
you do have some Marxists who are basically like China, right? Oh, yeah, it's happening more and more. It's happening more and more because, you know, well, when China becomes the largest GDP country relative to the U.S., then supposedly, right, this is the inauguration of the global dictatorship of the proletariat. I don't think so. I don't because it's my, still my be attitude a minority is, share. My attitude is if, if China becomes a greater, you know, produces more of the GDP, you know, the biggest nation, the most successful nation in the world, then that means that the, the task of the working class in China will be start a revolution. Yeah. I mean, right? I think that that's true too, but I also think that the U.S. isn't going away, right? Yeah. In other words, like, I think that, um, you know, the U.S. was the largest global economy before World War I. It already was. And, uh, and yet Britain still ruled the capitalist world. And with, with France as a kind of a sidekick and Russia as a kind of an adjunct added later, and really Germany kind of being the one that wanted to change the political order. But even you could say Germany and, and certainly the United States were kind of subordinate junior partners to British capital. And so, you know, the, the global hegemon doesn't disappear by virtue of GDP statistics, right? No. It's, it's, it's a matter of politics, geopolitics. And that's where I just feel like actually China does not want the role that the U.S. has had. Mm. Right. And, you know, it doesn't want to take that responsibility, really. Um, I mean, it might be forced to. Who knows? Right. But it doesn't really want it any more than the U.S. wanted it from Britain. The U.S. didn't really want it either, right? That's the whole controversy over the League of Nations. Like, why did the Republicans reject the League of Nations by Woodrow Wilson? Not because they were conservative reactionary nationalists. It's because they were the liberals. They were like, no, we shouldn't be telling the world what to do. Mm -hmm. Right? We shouldn't mm -hmm. be imposing this peace on the world. Right. Um, so, you know, again, it's... You know, the relationship between economics and politics is, of course, quite difficult. It, it is a mediated relationship. It's not a direct, determinative issue. Um, and, you know, we'll see. I mean, I do think Up until the point of the dictatorship of the proletariat, right. it's very complicated because it's mediated. But the idea is that the proletariat will become the new mediating force, will be able to have the political will to transform yes. the economic realm. It will be the, the beginning of the problem, not the end. It will be posing the problem, not solving it. The problem right. of capitalism. Because now right. we think that capitalism is this and that. We think that capitalism is the market. We think that it's Wall Street. You know, it's finance. It's whatever. And mm. really, capitalism, you know, is opaque. You know? Well, it, I think capitalism is the, the class relationship around production the, and the, the creation of abstract value through exploitation of labor. But isn't it the labor. accumulation of capital and not... It's both. Yeah, you know, I mean, if it's the relationship between, you know, production at the level of employer and employee, then in some ways that predates the Industrial Revolution. No, it, it's not right. No, it's a it's the it's the way in which that relationship has defined all production and the commodification of of I would relations. say no, no. OK, no. Why? Because it's only when the employer is subject to the capital accumulation imperative that you have capitalism in other words it doesn't come from class class comes from it meaning what is a capitalist is a capitalist a boss is no. a capitalist a proprietor mm. no they're a servant of capital right and no that's they're right successful when they are and they're unsuccessful when they're not 
Right, but I, okay, right. So I did. I don't disagree with what you're saying, right? And fundamentally, I maybe I mis- I didn't express it properly the first time around. But the point is that we it's not entirely opaque because through reading uh, Capital and other reading Postone, mm-hmm. reading mm-hmm. we can or reading uh, uh, Michael Roberts today, we can we can get a, a sense. We can follow how the mechanic the mechanism. So let's go to the function. state. Yeah. Let's go back to the state. What makes the state the capitalist state? Is the capitalist state a capitalist state because the capitalist class of investors has subordinated politics to its rule? Or is it because the state is dedicated to the accumulation of capital? It's the second thing. The second. That's right. Right. And 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 in China, this is why China is still capitalist. You can go in and nationalize. Yep. Um, and get rid of some of the capitalist class and still be in the service of capital accumulation in China. And but sometimes it's better to nationalize. The proletariat would still be that too. And that's why I raised yeah. maybe these countries are the dictatorship of the proletariat. Meaning mm. the dictatorship of the proletariat, in order to preserve civilization, in order to preserve like the accumulated accumulated labor of the past, will have to serve the accumulation of capital. And can only kind of steer it. I mean, are you sure? I mean, I understand that in peasant countries where the productive forces weren't that advanced, that there would be a need to not only like. But uh, that's primitive accumulation. Well, no, it's accumulation. Yeah. Right. right, In other words, accumulation is not just the destruction of the commons, it's not just primitive accumulation. Accumulation is an ongoing thing. Right. But we have the potential now to use the general transcend it yeah to transcend it right we can't just abolish it right right because that's the anarchism yeah the anarchism that's where i come from you know i come out of anarchism no because we still need capital like we need capital we need the nuclear power plants to keep running we need like the oil to still be on the ships on the ocean we need capital yeah but what mediate okay we need the but those are Use that's useful wealth that you're talking about, and but the it's, abstraction it's, it's still mediated, it will still be mediated by labor. In other words, this is the transition. I mean, really, what's most controversial about Marxism is mm. that it says we can't have socialism instantaneously, right? So, Marx has this wonderful critique of what's wrong with capitalism, but then politically, he says we can't overcome it instantaneously, and then people are like, oh. Why not? What do you mean? Oh, you want to put, you want to put the Marxists in charge, mm-hmm. right? It's what Bakunin said. You know, Marx and Engels. You know, mm-hmm. they're just going to be the dictators of the proletariat. They're not going to be. The so how do I just how do how do I distinguish between China and what I consider to be actual dictatorship of the proletariat? Where would the difference be? China is not steering the world towards socialism in any appreciable sense, meaning. It is, you know, this is, again, why the Maoists have a kernel of truth to them, mm-hmm. the ca- capitalist rotors versus the socialist rotors, and why the Maoists say that China is, like, social imperialist and capitalist. Like, they, like, denounce China. Like, the Maoists super denounce China after mm-hmm. the purge of the Gang of Four, right? Because it's like, well, China made a decision to prioritize capital accumulation over the struggle for socialism. Mm-hmm. And so how do you determine this? Politically, in other words, the dictatorship of the proletariat is going to be a massive global political struggle 
over the direction of humanity. Mm -hmm. And again, Marxism gives us the tools to understand that our choices are constrained by capital accumulation insofar as we haven't overcome that blind imperative. Right. 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 But, but again, like, again, that's is why I say the dictatorship of the proletariat doesn't solve the problem. It only poses it. Look, I, 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 I am halfway with you here. I mean, I am definitely for the dictatorship of the proletariat. I think I have some sort of Silicon Valley utopian. It's not the millennium. Like in other words, like, you know, it's not like the, end of history judgment day it's the beginning of history according to marx and engels it's the beginning of history that will make I, what we're doing now into prehistory i i want the working class to come along and invent new mediating uh, factors to uh to direct their real physical labor the way Something that i like other... to put it mm -hmm. is you know because i'm like you know bad chris catrone leninist blah 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 right i feel like the goal is to overcome Lenin and Luxembourg and Trotsky and Marx and Engels, right? In other words, like mm -hmm. if the revolution continues, then Marxism is overcome. Like you don't have to think about things in this way anymore, right? right. And so Marxism gets you to the dictatorship of the proletariat. And after that, it's, it's post-Marxism. So the problem right. being that we've tried to declare post-Marxism before we've gotten to even be able to address the problem of capital. No, I I agree with you. So, but I want to go back to your your s your your remarks um, because I had a question about how we judge the 20th century. I mean, it does seem to me you've made it complicated um, to judge the, the 20th century. It would, it's easier when you can say something like, "Well, as long as there's still commodity production, or as long as there's still exploitation, or as long as there's still wage labor, as long as there's still money," you know. As long as we're not all anarchists living uh, the dream, then capitalism persists. Or as long as there's still sexism, whatever you want to say. But mm -hmm. um, but uh, you uh, talk about the 20th century as a regression, yes, and not progression, yes. And if we aren't sure about the role of the state, and we if we're a little unclear about what is a dictatorship of the proletariat or not, then we still have the question like, how do we judge the 20th century? I think, and you know, can we say that uh, maybe in some ways the 20th century did have moments of progress or in sectors that had progress? Like, for instance, women were more liberated throughout the, the 20th century. Were they? More, well, they were more integrated into the working class and um, uh, they gained legal status and, and, and political power in the 20th century overall. Which may not matter so much. So, right. But, but simultaneously, though, at the same time, there was regression in so much as the working class was demobilized as a political class in ways that were inconceivable. I mean, look, I mean, of course, socialists always stood for the, the legal equality of women and mm -hmm. for women voting. I mean, this is why it's the when the SPD comes to power in Germany, that's when women get the right to vote. Right. When the Bolsheviks come to power, that's when women get the right to vote. Right. Mm -hmm. like, it's part of the Marxist program. However, however, so you, you could look at it a couple of ways. One is a dialectic of progress and regress. Another would be straight up regression. So it's tricky because I think the dialectic of progress and regress applies to the era of capitalism. Like that's the way the old Marxists 
understood capitalism as a dialectic of progress and regress. In other words, that that's one of the ways that the contradiction of capitalism is posed, is that it's both progress and regress at the same time, of freedom, of freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because we're not talking about like technology or something like that. Because no, no, like, I'm talking about right. freedom, like women's liberation. Right. Like freedom. Then the question is, well, what kind of freedom and freedom in what form? And obviously there are discontents with mere political emancipation. Otherwise, you wouldn't have second wave feminism. In other words, the first wave feminism is suffragism, essentially. Mm. And it's property rights and divorce rights and contraception rights, you know, at a legal juridical level, voting rights, you know, that, that, that all come together. Like, are you a full juridical subject or are you a minor? Right. Mm-hmm. All those come together. That's first wave feminism. And then why do we need second wave feminism? Because it turns out that's insufficient. Right. Mm-hmm. And the question is whether then after juridical emancipation, whether that's sexism anymore. Right. In other words, then you're really talking about complex issues of social reproduction and the family and how like the proletariat reproduces itself under capitalism. And, you know, you get into all this stuff about like paid and unpaid labor and, you know, social cooperation. That's a free gift to capital, you know, from the Grundrisse and whether women's labor amounts to that, you know, like you get into all these things. And so I would say that, you know, I guess that's the clearest example is that um, women are more equal and more free today than they were in 1919. I guess that Mm -hmm. would be the idea. I would challenge that. In other words, I would say that, you know, giveth with one hand, taketh with the other, meaning that already what Marx had pointed out back in the 1844 manuscripts, that um, abolishing, like, patriarchy would just make women into the prostitutes of society as a whole. And, you know, this was his analogy to wage slavery, mm-hmm. right? In other words, that, that, yes, women are now free to be wage slaves. But is that really emancipation? I guess it's emancipation relative to patriarchy. But then the issue is, is, is this really patriarchy? In other words, fundamentally, is this society patriarchal? Mm. And then you're going to go down the postmodernist highway where you get into like the androcentric character of the human. Like I saw Judith Butler speaking recently with Cornel West and Simon Critchley and Glenn Greenwald about identity politics. Mm-hmm. And Judith Butler, you know, true to form, she was like, well, the very definition of the human was sexist. I guess you could say that, right? In other words, that if, if we have like the bourgeois subject and the laboring subject, like woman as worker, I guess that is androcentric and I guess it is patriarchal. I guess it's based on all sorts of assumptions. She also tried to say that it's racist as if Mm. there are racial differences that are effaced, which is an interesting thing, right? So you're really going to say that non-white people are like different, different kinds of humans, you know, well, what, is he talking about the origin of the notion of hu- of humanism or of yeah, human- I mean it's Foucauldian, but she went more. She went beyond that. She went, you know, as as usual, the Foucauldians are worse than Foucault, right? Right, which is that it's not just about the origins; it's about now, today, right? Because she was attacking Glenn Greenwald for being a class reductionist and trying to restore the old humanism, which is inherently racist and patriarchal and blah blah sexist. Mm. Yeah, and I was like, okay, go girl. 
Well, know, I just remember when she that. talked about when she was interviewed by Matt McManus on the old channel, and he asked her what did she think about the rise of the social democracy uh, and the and the and the Bernie Sanders movement and cla- and the, the return of class politics, and she said she didn't. Uh, and she did not support it because it would restoration. Give, would restore white men into powerful positions on the on the left. On the left, and, and I had a well. I had a date. I, mean, I, I had a you know, I had a, I just feel I, like do we care? I had a date that went wrong. I have to work in my dating life to every single podcast. Okay. <laughs> no, I know what it's like. But and I and she I brought this up to her, and I said, so what what's what is uh. What does Judith Butler, Butler want white men who are on the left to do? Stay home and sew? <laughs> and and she, which was not a winning thing to ask. Uh, but and then she said, and I said, you know what? I'd be willing to do it if she would return to Marx and political economy and struggle for the working class. You know, if women are going to like lead the struggle for the dictatorship of the proletariat, I'm happy to stay home. Yeah, me too. Because, I, you know, yeah. who needs this shit? Really? Yeah, exactly. That's right. So, and but so. but the thing is, that she <laughs> she couldn't have really meant what she said. Because what she what she really meant was that. Uh, hey, I, I'm on, I'm on the podcast. Uh, what she really meant was, I don't want the struggle for class to return. Yeah, I know. That's really it, and that's that's really it, and that's where Adolf Reed is correct that this is just the left of capitalism, left of neoliberalism, mm-hmm. and I mean, I would just say again. Whatever happened to use your privilege? Yeah. Right? And, you know, because this angst about the PMC that we were talking about earlier, about, like, you know, whether the left is PMC, Mm -hmm. maybe we are. Like, maybe intellectuals are in a privileged position class-wise. But what about using that? Right? Like, maybe we need some more D-class A intellectuals. Maybe we need some more trust fund babies to be, like, you know, the theorists and strategists and full-time militants and organizers of the socialist movement. Fuck it. Like, yeah, why not? Yeah, I, I, I'm with you. Listen, uh, my kid just came home. I'm realizing he's home early. So uh-huh. I'm going to, I'm going to end this conversation here, but I'll, we'll in the parent room, we're going to go after Judith Butler more. That's some promise for people in, in, for, to tune in. I may not have that much more to go after her on, but yeah. Well, I'm just, uh-huh. promising something for the okay. room. 